You know, one of the most exciting things about working with Gun.io is I get to work with some of the most important consumer brands and fitness brands and enterprise brands. And what you find is that they're all looking for the very best talent and they're competing for it. And one thing I tell clients all the time is that, hey, you know, if you can develop um, the mindset to, to hire remote freelance engineers, what you're going to find is that it opens up the pool of available talent because you're not going to have to fight over the same group of FTEs from all the other companies in your space. And so now what we can do is bring you a cohort of people that other companies aren't competing with you against. And it's really a competitive advantage to take stock of that and find some excellent people you can bring on board. This is the Frontier Podcast powered by Gun.io, the engineer's choice for engineering talent. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe, and follow us on Twitter at The Frontier Pod. Tom, it's great to have you. Thanks for uh, joining me today. Absolutely, Ledge. Thanks for having us. So if you don't mind, maybe give a quick background story of yourself and your work and uh, let the audience get to know you a little bit. Sure. That's great. Thanks. Uh, I'm currently responsible for worldwide sales and marketing for a security software company called Syncurity. Uh, sort of think, synchronize your security. But I'm actually an old programmer. Um, and uh, I sort of joke that I've lost credibility over the years as I went from programming to managing programmers to then selling programming projects, uh, then become a sales engineer. And like all sales engineers, I thought, wow, the salespeople are making all the money and I'm doing all the work and ended up in sales. Uh, and, you know, after a few startups, a couple IPOs, two founders that sued each other into oblivion, um, you know, uh, here I am working at security <laughs> and loving every minute of it. Good, good. Well, it's, it's nice that there's a happy ending to those stories. Um, yeah. And, and, and I, I resonate with, with the sales and sales engineering seats, certainly after years of being a coder and, you know, going to the business dark side, um, would love to, you know, still fire up the, uh, the IDE once in a while, but <laughs> I do not get to do that as often as I would like these days. So obviously, I mean, security is a huge topic and, you know, off mic before we started, you and I were just sort of saying it's, it's completely overwhelming. I mean, there, there are so many, you know, stories and, and use cases and, you know, sort of signal noise tools. I mean, it's just like as a consumer of, of this stuff, you know, enterprise or not, you know, I mean, everybody is just engulfed in this, uh, you know, sort of the, I don't know, tech pop culture of, of cybersecurity now. And, you know, maybe, maybe help just make a little bit of sense of where you guys fit in the world sure. and, and that conversation. Yeah, that's great. I often joke with people that there's kind of two buckets of security products, one which helps detect and find things. And that's probably about 95% of all the products and vendors that people know and love. Then there's a small subset of the market that actually tries to make sense of all that noise and that's kind of the bucket that we're in the ladder, right? So if people think about all these great tools, and, and there is definitely some incredible innovation going on in the detection world, right? How do I find the true signal from the noise uh, when it comes to things like network traffic or endpoint or user behavior, right? And generally what people do is they track those those signals and they try to rationalize them through some type of, you know, consolidating mechanism. You know, sometimes it's a technology called SIM, security 
information and event management or, you know, an elk stack or Splunk and, and try to sort of get some sort of curated list of, hey, these are the things that might be bad that we need to figure out. Uh, what to do with. And that's really where our story begins. The market we play in is referred to by Gartner as security, orchestration, automation, and response. And where we typically pick up is where somebody's got a couple of different threads of this type of signal information from a uh, a SIM, or maybe they hire a third party to monitor part of their network. Most people have trained all their users to be very suspicious of phishing messages. And so they tell them to right click in their email client to send those emails in. And that creates another stream of input for the security team to try to analyze. And then there's situations where somebody calls the IT help desk about something wrong with their computer. And then after a little bit of triage, they think, wow, this might be a security event. Let me escalate this and throw it over the wall of the security team. So these security teams are sort of being inundated with these sort of unnormalized streams, if you will, of, of signal. And they have to quickly figure out which ones are real, which ones represent potentially the most risk to the business. And, you know, how do we validate them quickly? And of the ones that prove to be real, how do we contain and remediate them, right? And there's a process that people have to go through. It's a very nonlinear process in the case of these sophisticated attacks, right? Because uh, I was saying earlier when we were talking um, in a criminal environment, right? You don't just plug in the data and find the perp, right? (laughs) The cops have to get a clue, leads them to another clue. And and so forth. So we sort of guide people through that investigation. And then we also automate the analysis where, you know, if we can find out that some signal came in, somebody, a bunch of failed logins from different places outside the country or outside the normal hours, uh, business hours for a user. But we can quickly correlate that with other information, uh, badge swipes or other login data from other applications to verify whether that's legitimate or not. So we can sort of use automation to help get rid of some of the low value, high volume commodity noise, if you will, um, still document that they were looked at and, and, and defend the decision not to pursue them further, but really save the four and a half inches between the analyst's ears for those things that really represent, you know, a sticky wicket to the business. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, the first thing I think is you're talking about automation. I haven't read a brief for anything in cybersecurity lately, especially in the startup realm that doesn't involve machine learning and AI. And we're going to pump all this data into machine learning and AI algorithms, and it's going to do magical security things. So, you know, if in fact that's true, tell us how, if that's in fact maybe a little bit of the, the hype bubble, you know, it would be totally cool to unpack that because it's an overwhelming amount of information right now just on the tooling front. Yeah, you know, it's fine. I'll give the old consulting answer that it depends, but the truth is it's a little of both, right? When you think about it, machine learning, AI, you know, they perform best when they have really large sets of data. And so when you think about raw logs that are coming in from these devices, you know, like a firewall, every time there's a connection accept or a deny, you know, you're generating these logs. And for a large enterprise or a service provider that, that that's, you know, managing networks or even a cloud provider, right? Somebody who's, you know, providing cloud service, they're just generating billions of these logs, right? And so there's no doubt that some type of um, advanced um, analytics and processing using, you know, either, you know, methods of machine learning or forms of artificial intelligence can help sort of rationalize or find the pattern or find, you know, sort of the, um, 
uh, indicator that matters out of all that that noise. The problem is that that type of you know analysis is a little bit harder when you're talking about the investigation process because it, candidly most enterprises while they might get billions of logs that create maybe thousands of discrete alerts that might have to be investigated you know very few of them maybe in the dozens at most you know result in something that gets investigated and even then very few of them uh turn into incidents right so you know, when you think about it, uh, if I only have a couple of investigations a week in my enterprise uh, that result in me having to take action, corrective action to, you know, prevent uh, or contain the spread of, of um, uh, some type of penetration or exfiltration of data, you know, that takes a long time and a lot of observations before you have, you know, sort of a, a data set that can really you know, be adapted with machine learning and artificial intelligence. So what you have is you have the ability on the front end to use those types of technologies to better find the initial signal, the detection, if you will. And then you need some combination of automation that can talk to other systems and verify with context whether or not that might be an issue. And then in the case where, you know, it turns out that this might be suspicious, you need some type of environment where the analysts can sort of help guide their investigation, pivot from tool to tool using APIs to get context and validate information to help them sort of scope the size of the problem. And of course, more importantly, if it, if it needs to be contained or remediated, you know, direct the actions that need to be taken. Hopefully that, that helped clear some of that confusion. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think, Broadly speaking now, you know, it's it's a hot topic to be able to say that you're using, you know, those techniques, but uh, you're right. And it seems to be in the conversations that I have with with tech leaders in, in every industry. Um, yeah. Hey, this is great. Right. We're able to process a lot of data. Uh, we can learn from that data. That does not mean we know exactly what next thing to do, nor is that next thing even close to being automated you know, uh, from and removing yeah. uh, the human analyst from the equation, which, you know, you could go on for hours and hours about, you know, it's just like, how do you manage the human resources, you know, constraints and expertise around that and uh, the whole thing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, ultimately, like 90% or more of the users, you know, just don't care and you need to be able to abstract that yeah. away. Yeah. Well, and there's definitely, you know, there's definitely that hype cycle, right? You have v VCs that go to these startups and say, are you using machine learning or AI? You know, it's, it's like, I used to joke in the early days, I'll show my age with this comment, but it's like, can you spell XML? Oh, well, then you're an expert, right? Uh, and so, you know, look, people got to understand, you know, oh, well, this is telling me the probability of what to do next. Well, you know, I'm no statistician, right? But you don't need machine learning, or artificial intelligence to statistically compute probability, right, from a data set. So I think, you know, everybody needs to sort of take their hype blinders off and and think critically about the problem that they're trying to solve and and how, given the size of the data set uh, available, you know, what techniques are going to yield the objective they're after. And in our environment, there's, you know, there's a combination of things that machine learning and AI can help with, certainly across customers, as we get observations across customers, right? And when you get a data set of critical mass, you can start, you know, learning from that and inferring um, using this type of technique. And that's certainly what we're doing now. But, 
you know, uh, I do caution people, like you said, to, to be leery of the hype. Absolutely. So you've got a, like you said, a storied career rising out of, of technology into sales engineering and sales. And, uh, and you do sell it to enterprises. And that, uh, you know, I think that's a thing that, that most people in business, especially in the technology business, you know, like as you scale and as you grow, you're going to move up market, you're going to sell into the enterprises. And it's just a, a materially different experience than it is, you know, when, when you're small and you, and you grow up to that, that stage, having worn that sales and sales engineering hat for that level of customer, can you draw on some of your experiences and say, you know, what, what works when you, you have to grow your company to the stage where you're, you're selling to the, the very biggest dogs? Yeah, well, I think there's an important distinction, too, is that if you are selling some form of services, increasingly you're selling both to enterprises and then to other service providers who provide services, uh, you know, to those enterprises. Uh, because, uh, you know, if you just think about the adoption of cloud for applications, for example, I mean, virtually nobody runs an internal payroll system anymore, right? Virtually everybody uses some type of service from ADT or something like that, right? And so increasingly enterprises are turning for IT services to these different service providers. So whatever you're selling, you have to be prepared to sell both directly to enterprises, the large ones like the ones you were referring to earlier, but also if you really want to succeed, you have to be prepared to also sell to service providers, which you know have some of the same requirements, but have some additional complexities around scale, um, segregation of data, multi-tenancy, and other things, depending upon the application. So I think the key thing is right. that what I've observed in my career is that the same trends that are mega trends that people talk about that are driving and changing the IT landscape are changing the way you sell into enterprises. Everything from you know the so the emergence of the social network, the online, the plethora of online resources, and um, you know just the nature of how organizations make decisions in a very matrixed fashion. I think there was a study that came out recently that said that there are seventy two different people that weigh in on an enterprise purchase over you know a hundred thousand dollars. Right. So think about that for a second. It, it's somewhere along the line, you know, all these people touch this in some way, shape or form, or they're way in as an influencer or they have something to do with the processing of that purchase. And so that's that's kind of a staggering statistic when you think about it. So what I find is you have to really uh, much like you do in your personal life, you have to really adapt. You know, you have to make yourself visible to people when they're searching, right? The other stat is I think 67% of the research buyers do in the enterprise space, they do online or through matrixed, you know, and peer resources before they ever reach out and connect with a potential supplier, right? And so that means you, you know, you can call all you want all day long and you'll, you'll never reach anybody because nobody answers the phone anymore. Um, the, but you could also invest a lot of time and money in making sure that the services you're providing, the benefits and the value of that are available online and, and found when people that want that service are searching and looking for that, doing their research, um, so to speak. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, discoverability is is really the the biggest issue now. And it, it's, it's not that different than the type of discoverability you run into. You say, well, I've got an app store. And, you know, if I'm a consumer thing, this is great because now I can just expose to a billion users. Um, 
except that it's not because everybody else thinks yeah. the same thing, right? So, exactly. um, you know, now I, I can't discover your solution when I need it. And that area of research is tiny um, yeah. and the sales cycle is long, right? Yeah. So, and, and in every market, there's external influencers that, you know, help augment that search, right? So if you think about it in the enterprise technology space, any of the folks that have either done time or done work for any of the large ISVs, you know, independent software vendors or, you know, uh, other solution providers know that Gartner is a pretty heavily weighted influencer for a lot of enterprise decisions, right? And so as you look to make yourself available online, you also have to have that social network construct I was referring to earlier. It's just, it's no different. It's increasingly important and it's not selling online, right? It's just being a, a meaningful contributor to communities of like minded and interested people, right? That may be, if you've ever heard of Peerlist, P-E-E-R-L-Y-S-T, they're a sort of micro network of really um, passionate security professionals, cybersecurity professionals, right? Sort of like a a LinkedIn for cyber in a sense. Um, and so, you know, if you're contributing meaningful content, you're, you're providing value in a way as part of a network or group of people that helps, you know, augment that into your problem you were talking earlier about the, you know, the, the visibility factor. And the other is to try to cultivate relationships with those influencers in your respective market. You know, it's, it's painful in some ways in the Gartner world it is a pay to play franchise, but um, it, it's certainly, in my opinion, worth every penny of it. It's invaluable to have those influencers, whoever they may be in your market, be aware of you and know of you. So that if a prospective customer calls up and says, you know, give me a sampling of some of the providers in this market, you know, and some of the, you know, strengths and weaknesses, uh, you want to be in that conversation that that will absolutely help improve your, you know, um, you know, demand generation, so to speak. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. And uh, you know, obviously that's a daunting task for anyone that's growing up, you know, their company and just trying to go, Hey man, I just want the phone to ring, you know, and yeah. uh, <laughs> totally, totally resonate with that in, in various roles, you know, that I've had and the phone doesn't mm-hmm. ring and you know, it, you, you have uh, a multi-channel environment now that, um, it's just increasing. So the, the, you know, kind of, uh, attack surface, if you will, you know, it used to just be, well, you know, we had advertising and we have PR and we have, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and we should reach who we need to reach. And, uh, what has happened is the, the field has broadened so much that becoming a meaningful voice that stands out from the crowd, you know, is, is a huge undertaking and, uh, you know, companies need to be thinking about investing there. We'll typically see people out of the gate, you know, spend way too much money on product and not enough on promotion in marketing yeah. and, and what becomes sales, you know, ultimately. Sure. You know. Well, and that's, it's definitely a science it depends on what type of business you are. You know, if you're a one person shop and you're sort of uh, freelancing your way through contracts, right? That's different than if you're 10 people with a startup and you're trying to grow to a hundred, right? There's obviously a different trajectory, a different business model and everything about how you promote yourself there. Um, but I think 
and the stage of the of, of the enterprise also dictates you know you do have to create some type of unique ip even if you're a service provider and you're or you're uh, you know freelancer that uh, somebody that's hired out as a hired gun so to speak right you've got to be able to at least identify what it is you do and and what's sort of differentiated about what you do spend the time thinking critically about that and then to your point promote it and you know, there's an old adage in marketing that people have to hear something seven times uh, from seven different modes of communication, if you will, before it sticks, right? So that's, hey, I need to be out participating in some of these social networks of like-minded peers. I might need to be present in some of the venues where like-minded people, like everything from B-sides to, you know, uh, other organizations where, you know, the type of people that you guys are working with, uh, you know, congregate and socialize. And I need to be, uh, you know, able to try to influence the influencers to some degree. It's a little bit of, you know, placing bets, you know, like the old thing on a roulette wheel, you know, put a coin in the intersection of four numbers, you know, it doesn't pay out as much on each number, but, you know, you spread your bet, right? And I think it's the same thing in these uh, enterprises, small or medium size or even large that are trying to make that um, differentiated voice heard is to, you know, spread the wealth, right? Use multiple channels, uh, you know, and you can't underestimate the value of in-person, right? Um, I always joke with people that it's really important to meet in the carbon form. <laughs> um, and uh, and so, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, you may have to make some investment in getting out of your office uh, wherever you do your work in a, a beach chair in Maui or whatever <laughs> um, and, and socialize with the people that, you know, uh, either help define your market or help influence it or, you know, are, are your potential customers. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I wish that I was on a beach chair in Maui, but, uh, you know, got to take <laughs> what we too. can get, right? <laughs> well, Tom, yeah. appreciate the time. You know, um, you, you guys are tackling really important issues um, out there. And I don't think that the, the chatter around cyber is going to go anywhere anywhere soon. So at least you're on the the front side of the the hype cycle doing the right stuff. So thank you for the insights today. It's, it's, it's great to have you on. Yeah, absolutely. Ledge. And I would just encourage anybody in the community of yours that's listening. Look, if you have a client uh, that might be interested or might be thinking about, you know, how do they better leverage the limited resources they have, the, you know, in the security operations side, look us up at security.net, or you can always reach me uh, on LinkedIn or Twitter. Um, it's Tom underscore young 22. So, uh, what we really appreciate the time and we're looking forward to, um, you know, continuing this dialogue with, with you and the whole gun IO team. Thanks so much. Yep. Thanks for listening to the frontier podcast produced by gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, Head over to gun.io slash podcast to get in touch, and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast, produced by gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.